1: The way we design our homes, our streets, our cities, how does that impact how we feel and how we act? So how can we design spaces where people thrive in? To me, it's not just about the furniture or the candles, it's also about how we interact as families or friends or individuals.
0: Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect Podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you Enjoy the show. Today, my guest is the awe inspiring Mike Wiking. He founded the world's first happiness research institute in 2013 in Copenhagen to better understand the impacts on human happiness, inform policymakers, and ultimately improve overall quality of life for citizens across the world. The research combines qualitative and quantitative methods, studying thousands of people from multiple countries to provide insights on the level of well-being, happiness, and quality of life. He is the author of three books, which have sold in 39 territories. Worldwide. The Little Book of Hike. Mike's first book was an international New York Times and Sunday Times bestseller with over a million copies sold worldwide. Today we're going to be speaking about happiness and his latest book that's just coming out My Hike Home. This book is just brilliant and it couldn't be more needed given the fact we're spending more time in our homes and the environments we spend most time in has a huge impact and influence in the way we feel mike answers the question can our homes make us happier can we design for better well-being can we create better homes where we not only live but we thrive what's a favorite quote you return to often and why
1: I think it was Einstein who said, try not to be a man of success, but try to become a man of value. Um, It was actually one of the things that inspired me to create the Happiness Research Institute. I just really wanted to work with this field. And I thought there should be somebody in Denmark trying to collect the knowledge there is on why some people and why some countries are happier than others. Uh, It was one late evening in the office office. Uh, I was working for a think tank on sustainability. I stumbled upon uh, the first world happiness report that had been published by the UN. And uh, there was 155 countries ranked and Denmark was in first place. And I thought, why is Denmark often doing well? Somebody should look into that. I essentially just quit and started out with uh, what I thought was a good idea and and a bad laptop.
0: I've read your story and it wasn't easy in the beginning. You really had to sacrifice a lot of creature comforts in many ways to do this. And this really kind of resonates with the quote that you've chosen in terms of live a life of value, not success.
1: Yeah. And I I think it's wonderful when you then get to experience that once you try to create something of value, Mm. whether that's knowledge or products or whatever it is, then often that will also lead to success. But thinking about it in a different way is much more motivating.
0: Absolutely. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why?
1: Maybe it actually also goes back to, to the origin story of the Happiness Research Institute because one thing was the idea of creating the Institute, but it also took a bit of a push, I think, personally, to build up the courage to create something from scratch, uh, going from a, a well-paying job just in the wake of the financial crisis over to creating a think tank on happiness. And, and the life lesson was, sorry to go dark, but sort of the, the momentum mori, you know, remembering that we have to die. Uh, because also back in, in 2012, I lost a, a mentor of mine who I really looked up to in many ways. And, and he only became uh, 49. And many years ago, my own mother had also died when she was 49. So back then, I was 34. So I had 15 years left until I would be 49. So I started to sort of consider, okay, if I only have 15 years left, what should I do with those 15 years? And I can continue with this job, which is fine, but I wasn't passionate about it anymore. And um, I had been there for seven years in that old job. And I just felt there was a lot of energy around happiness research and creating this new institution. And and that gave me the final push to say, okay, if it's only 15 years left, what should I do with that time? And I I just sensed there was so much more energy for me in working with with happiness research than in this old job. And I think it's a wonderful thing to be reminded of sometimes that that our time here is limited. And it was also a recent thing because not that many years ago, I turned 40. And uh, statistically speaking, that meant that I had lived half my life. In Denmark, men, we live on average to 80. Uh, So I just started to reflect what have I done with the first half of my life and what are my fondest, what are my happiest memories from from those 40 years and what can I do going forward uh, to create happy moments in the future. So it's something that I'm reminded of from time to time, that our time here is limited and and we should make the best use uh, of the time we have.
0: When you reflected back, what did you find to be those moments that had been most fulfilling for you? And were they different to what you would have expected they might be?
1: I reflected a lot on my own sort of experiences, but but we actually also did a survey uh, at the Happiness Research Institute. We got more than a 1,000 people from, I think it was 70 or 80 countries, to send in happy memories. A lot of them has to do with connection, meaningful experiences. Um, I remember there was one British lady who wrote... Her happy memory was uh, one day her family had decided uh, to go to the beach to have breakfast and they go out there and they can't get the fire going and they end up eating this half raw porridge covered in sand. But it became this sort of lovely family anecdote. I think that, you know, some of those things that went wrong that weren't perfect, they actually end up being some of our happiest moments. But we can also see uh, what, what people tend to remember is first time experiences. They simply stick better to memory. People remember almost month by month what happened when they were 21. But when they're 41, you know, if it's 10 years after, "Mm, maybe I went to the office a lot that year, right? So, of course, what we should then do is try and build in more uh, first experiences. And that can be sort of new tastes, new sensation, new sounds, our memories linked through our, our different senses, so um, you see something, you see a book, or you see uh, your high school, and then suddenly that triggers uh, memories of experiences you had back then. Uh, music can do it. Uh, sense can do it. And I think my, my favorite memory that came from one of my, my readers was a, a, a Polish lady who had read my book, and it was The Art of Making Memories. And she said she was a reminder of a time when she was about 80 years old, and uh, she was having dinner with her mother and her sister. And they, was having, they were having this uh, colorful Polish dish, and they're laughing, they're happy, uh, they're having a good time. And then at one point, her mother turns to her and her sister and says, I hope you remember this moment. And here we are 30 years later, she still remembers that moment because her mother made her pay attention to it. Um, so attention is the very foundation of memory. And of course, it's, it's a powerful tool that can also be overused Because if you, every time you sit down with your friends, say, I hope you remember this moment, they're likely to tell you to shut up after the first few times, right? But but used every (laughs) once in a while, I think it's a really powerful one. So first time experiences, uh, attention, connection with others uh, are some of the ingredients that goes into um, happy memories.
0: I ask everyone how they define happiness. And it's obviously very rare to be talking to the founder of the FIRST Research Center for Happiness. So from a professional and also from a personal standpoint, how do you define happiness?
1: I like a wide, broad definition. Uh, I like the the definition that goes that happiness is a feeling of contentment, joy, positive emotions combined with the sense that your life is meaningful and worthwhile. Uh, so, So to me, a happy life, a good life is a rich life with many different ingredients on the plate. I think we need an overall satisfaction with life, taking a step back, looking at our lives and and being happy or satisfied with what we see. But I also think it's important to have those sort of daily experiences of joy, of excitement, of laughter, of love, of passion that are momentary. And then thirdly what Aristotle talked about a lot, the meaningful life, the purpose uh, in life. I think we need all three ingredients for a good, rich life. So I think we need that wide definition. The the trouble with that is then when we, we look at it from a scientific point of view, we should make sure that we are talking about the same things when we are talking about happiness. So we also need to break it down into different components. I like to use the analogy of saying, when we talk about, for example, the British economy, We would also break that down into the unemployment rate, Mm. definitely the inflation rate. We would talk about that these days, uh, GDP per capita, interest, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the UK economy doing. So that's also, I think, what we should do with happiness. We should talk about overall life satisfaction. Mm. We should talk about what kind of emotions, both positive and negative ones, do I experience day to day? And also, Mm. do I have a, a sense of purpose and meaning in life? And I think all are important, none more than than the other. But, But what's your definition of happiness?
0: I would totally agree with you, a sense of purpose that is beyond the self. And I think that I find it really interesting how access to mental health support has never been more accessible in many ways, and yet we've never been so unhappy if you look at the statistics. So I don't know whether that's because we may have access to this support, but we are all lacking perhaps in a greater purpose. And why do you think we're struggling so much and yet we are talking about happiness more than ever?
1: I think now we have the bandwidth to talk about and to address mental health and to look at well-being. I think Earlier in history, there was survival mode. And now we can focus also not just on survival, but on on thriving, on mental health, on well-being. But I think you're right that there is this schisma or this paradox between having access to mental health therapy and then also seeing a a rise in depression, stress, anxiety, and so on. I think one of the reasons we're seeing that the rise is that we are to some extent, especially in the UK, but also in Denmark, have become more successful in removing the stigma there is around mental health. Mm. Uh, Now it's more legitimate to talk about it. We might not put it on a bumper sticker, but we might share in groups, circles that we trust, that we are intimate with. And here, I think it's also important for me as a a happiness researcher uh, to say that we all experience unhappy periods. We all go through... You know, heartbreaks and stress and failure from time to time. And, and unfortunately, that's part of the human experience. The task is to figure out how do we tackle them mm. and bounce back. But yeah, there, there is an increase also in Denmark, in especially young people uh, struggling with life. I know you have also done some research and some talks around what's the role of social media. I think we align there on the pitfalls in, in terms of social media, the comparison mechanism that just goes into overdrive. We know from a lot of our studies that we are social beings. Uh, We compare ourselves to each other. That's quite evident when we look at income and happiness. Uh, In a lot of countries, people care less about absolute income. So how much am I able to consume and care more about uh, relative income? So how much money am I making compared to my reference group, to my friends, to my peers, etc.? And I think it's the Americans that have a saying that goes, a happy man is a man that makes $100 more than his wife's sister's husband.
0: That's hilarious, that quote.
1: <laughs> so we, we, we constantly mirror our situation towards each other. So whether I'm happy with you know, 30,000 per year depends whether my friends make 25 or 35. Mm. And I think that's quite built into us. And then when we threw these devices, are exposed to a sort of constant bombardment of great news and events and perfect pictures from everybody else's lives, contrasting to my kitchen floor that is uh, still having a bit of spaghetti uh, on it after my daughter (laughs) had uh, (laughs) breakfast this morning. It's a difficult contrast to compare my life uh, up against. And I think we are aware of it. I know we are aware of it. We know that, that what we see on Instagram are not the real life, but I think we're still sort of affected by it.
0: This reminds me of a quote I actually noted down from your first bestselling book. And you write, we are attracted by the illusion of connection, but the loss of intimacy.
1: You know, when I was in high school, there was no social media and I wasn't the popular guy in school, but it wasn't that much in my face that all the popular parties, I wasn't part of them because I couldn't mm-hmm. see them on Instagram and so on. So I think young now I sound old when I say young people nowadays, uh, but... People that are growing up with Instagram and TikTok and whatnot. I think it's a more challenging situation to be in, to have that sort of quantified popularity in your face all the time. And I think it's also interesting to see there is a boarding school in Denmark that have uh, kids, I think they're 14, 15, and 16. And when the kids arrive, the school take all the devices. So all the phones, all the iPads, whatnot. And then they're allowed their devices, their phones, one hour per day. And then after six months, it's put to a vote among the students. Should we continue with the system or should everybody get their phone back? And on average, 80% of the students vote to keep the system in place. You know, when none of us have our phone, we actually connect with the people we are with and form a community. And I think that's interesting, but the boarding school has an advantage because they can create that the question is how do you get to that analog critical mass when it's out of a sort of lab environment? Do you have any
0: ideas of how we would do that? Because even in the home, I think I'd find it tricky if my boyfriend was like, No, we can't use our phone. You would always <laughs> mean you know, it would always feel quite <laughs> to, do, to tutorial. Yeah.
1: Right. I know some families practice that perhaps between six and eight in the evening. All the phones are, you know, in a basket. So we're actually together. I know some streets have experimented with sort of no phone Fridays or no phone Sundays, uh, where none of the kids on the street are allowed to play with their phones, and they actually run out and play outside. Initiatives like that.
0: And just quickly on that connection that you touched on, social status and happiness. Why is it so connected?
1: I think it's just an inherent trait we have that we care about our position in the social hierarchy. And I think that's quite ingrained in us. And I think it's good to be aware of so we can try and fight it and and not do constant comparisons. Also, we have an unfortunate tendency to compare upwards. There's a lot of people in this world that are, are doing better than me and are more successful than I am, et cetera. But there's definitely also a lot that are doing worse. Uh, But we have a tendency to look upwards um, and maybe sometimes we we need to be reminded of the privileges we have. And also, if we look at sort of the effects of the pandemic, uh, my hope for that is also that we retain that sense of gratitude we have for perhaps the simple pleasures. I mean, meeting friends for coffee perhaps was something we took for granted uh, pre-pandemic. But it turned out that is actually something that brings happiness to a lot of us. So hopefully we can remind ourselves of, of what is actually bringing happiness.
0: When I read your work, I think you do an amazing job of decoupling wealth from happiness to actually really divorce this idea of happiness is not the accumulation of more and better. And this new book is just wonderful for that because you look at the design of a home and how that can improve people's well-being without a hefty price tag and i found it deeply inspirational so why was this your next book
1: Uh, i really like that that is what you focus on because that that is also a very important part for me in terms of what hygge is to me hygge is the good life on a cheap budget, or being happy with little or nothing, and making the best of what we have. The inspiration for the book came from different sources. One was after I had written the first book, uh, the little book of, of Hygge, I was talking to a Canadian reader, and in that book, there's an entire chapter about lighting uh, because Hygge is this sort of how do we create a nice atmosphere, for example, through lighting, and. This reader, Yannick, uh, told me that after reading about Hügen, he went out and he bought some candle holders and he started to light the candles for dinner at home with his family. He and his wife, they have, at the time at least, they had uh, three teenage sons. So two, I think, twins who were 15 and an 18-year-old. And uh, boys, you know, they started to tease him. Dad, what's going on with the candles? Do you want to have some romantic time with mom? Should we leave? <laughs> but uh, but uh, over time, the dad says, you know, the boys, they started to light the candles for dinner. And it became this ritual of family time. And the most important thing I think he told me was the family dinners now last 15 to 20 minutes longer. Because a simple thing like lighting a candle around the dinner table puts the boys in a different mood. So instead of just shoveling down their, their food, they relax, they talk about their day, they sip their wine. You know, if a little... Dis- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass." change or a little hack around how a family interacts. Something as simple as a candle can change how a family have dinner. What else can we do? Churchill said, you know, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. I've also experienced that Uh, pre-pandemic. I used to travel 80 days per year. And I think within a month, I had two very different experiences uh, in two different hotels. So one was in uh, Beijing, I was there for the first time. And I came into my hotel room and I just wanted to stay there <laughs> for the entire trip because it was, a, it was a nice room where people had actually considered, how to, can we make this room nice to stay in for other human beings? So there were uh, books in the room that you actually wanted to read in and sort of a, a warm, soft space. And later that month, I was in uh, Berlin also staying in a hotel. It was a bigger room than the one in Beijing, but it was just sort of without any soul and without any sort of consideration going into the room of how is this going to feel for our guests staying in this room. So I think the the most sort of ridiculous thing was there was a picture frame with a a picture of a sheep and sort of asexual, sort of sterile. Why didn't inspire me to do anything except get out of the hotel room? Mm. And those two experiences was also sort of a a catalyst in the way we design our homes, our streets, our cities. Mm. How does that impact how we feel and how we act? During the the pandemic, I think a lot of us uh, got an eye-opening or eye widening experience in terms of the places we are and the homes we have. How do they impact how we feel? Also, a very sort of tangible example is, I think this is from a, a UK study where they looked at kids age seven. And if they have a TV in their bedroom, they are 20% more likely if they're boys to be overweight four years after, 30% if they're girls. Something as simple as just having that TV in your room is going to impact your weight in four years time. We know the amount of books you have when you grow up also impact your literacy levels later in life. So how can we design spaces where people they thrive in? That was my sort of core question coming into the book. And it's been a lot of fun uh, and also inspiring to look at. And to me, it's not just about the furniture or the candles. It's also about how we interact as families or friends or uh, individuals from, you know, what we put in our fridges and how to how we eat to how close we are with our, with our neighbors. So it impacts a lot of different aspects in life.
0: I mean, the research in this book absolutely had me thinking about how huge the impact of our environments is, and yet how little we are told about the impact. You know, I think that would be quite shocking, actually, for people to hear that a television in a child's bedroom can influence their obesity rate four years later. I mean, it's these numbers are huge, and another huge number I was quite shocked by was the study found that sixty percent of people uh, with depression found that they were living in an apartment with not enough natural light.
1: In daylight, yeah.
0: I mean, this just feels something that's so basic, you know, access to daylight, and yet so many of us are living in homes without it. I mean, I'd love to talk about the impact of light and our well-being, and what were your thoughts on that, and how can we potentially change it.
1: And and you're right. And I think the whole daylight domain is going to be uh, huge, hopefully in real estate, but also in Mm. healthcare going forward. Mm. In Denmark, there's also regulation in terms of workplaces that you need to be able to sit uh, next to a window and have daylight. And there are several studies that show people work outside, have fewer cases of, of depression. To me, I think that the biggest surprise in, in terms of the importance of daylight, was a, a pilot study at the main hospital in Copenhagen where they have people submitted when they are dealing with depression. In Copenhagen, being a northern town, we have more sunlight in uh, south-facing rooms. And people who are submitted with depression at the hospital uh, spend, I think it was, uh, 29 days in hospital when they're in a south-facing room. But when they're in the north-facing room, they spend 59 days. And now the the hospital is doing experiments with sort of dynamic light that follows the pattern of of the daylight. And I think this is an overlooked element in how we design our homes and how also how we design our lives in our homes. It's actually old news because one of the earliest architecture books uh, was written uh, more than 2,000 years ago. And Vitruvius talked about the importance of having high windows if your room is deep. So of course, if you have a deep room, the light is has more trouble getting deep inside the room. So you need higher windows. And I think a lot of us don't recognize uh, that today, or at least the importance of it. And of course, what can we then do about it? Uh, there's a wide spectrum there from the very expensive solutions in terms of getting a, a skylight. I can't afford that. Uh, also, if you have an upstairs neighbor, it's probably not going be <laughs> to be okay with that. <laughs> but to, to sort of very sort of simple you know, solutions like getting your windows cleaned or trimming if there are hedges around uh, the, the windows, so letting more light in. But also the materials you choose and the colors you choose inside is also going to reflect light in different ways. Uh, so there's definitely things we can do in terms of bringing more light uh, into our homes. But it's also Things like being aware of where do I have light in my home at different times of day.
0: What is the Diderot effect? Why do we want things we don't need?
1: (laughs) If I can just rewind a little bit. Yeah. Because at the Happiness Research Institute, I think one of the biggest studies we did was around why some people are more satisfied with their homes than others. Mm -hmm. And we did a survey of I think it was 13,000 people, 2,000 from the UK, 1,000 from Denmark, 10 different European countries. And the biggest factor in why some people are happier with their homes than others is the sense of space. So having a spacious home, not necessarily a big home, but if it feels big, if it's decluttered, then people are much more likely to be satisfied with their homes. And remember a few years ago, uh, Marie Kondo talked a lot about decluttering, going through all the stuff in your home and asking yourself whether they spark joy. And if they didn't, get rid of them. And my take is that we can do a little bit better. Instead of decluttering, we can pre-clutter. We can consider actually not buying crap and, and bringing it uh, into our homes. It's also very good these days when, when cost of living is going up uh, to be more sort of budget uh, conscious on that one. The Diderot effect comes from the French philosopher Diderot, who a couple of hundred years ago suddenly got a lot of uh, money. He, he sold his book collection to Catherine the Great, and suddenly he got a lot of money. The first thing he, he did was he went out and he bought a, a scarlet robe, and he was very happy with that robe. But then he started to look around and he said, mm, with this beautiful robe, all my other stuff looks really old. And then he got a new dresser and a new cabinet and everything had to be sort of new, 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 new. And I think that that's quite also ingrained in us. You know, we, we're familiar with the, uh, I think, effect when we paint one wall or one room, then all the other rooms or walls, they, ah, now they look kind of gray or we, and they need a fresh coat of, of paint. Okay. So we upgrade. And it's something that sort of the big uh, furniture stores, they are aware of. You know, Ikea will design an entire bedroom with the sort of same brand name. Uh, so if you get that dresser, you have to get that cabinet and that bed and that bedside table and that lamp because it all goes together. And it means we bring more stuff uh, into our home. So I think it's something to be aware of in terms of fighting the clutter, pre-cluttering, being aware of that mechanism. And I think especially, I mean, inflation is going through the roof in Denmark. I, I think that's the case also in the UK. So so in the book, I also talk about how to counter food waste mm. uh, because that is also what, what hygge is, making the best of what we have and, and again, a good life on a tight budget. And I can see that this was a, a few years ago. There was a study that said that the average UK household throw away food worth of 750 pounds each year. Oof. And now with inflation, it's probably closer to 1,000 pounds. Some of the things that, that people can do something that I practice is in the fridge, we have a retirement shelf or a hospice shelf. So all the food that you need to eat in the next day or two, that goes in that shelf. And it has to be the first thing you see in the fridge. So not hidden up behind the jams or the pickled whatever. First thing. So in my fridge now, there's some salmon we need to eat. There's some green beans. Uh, so we need to work that into today's lunch. Because if it's just random places behind the jars and and, and so on in your fridge, you're going to find it in three weeks and the salmon is not going to be very nice. Also, keep a list on your phone with what you have in the freezer. Because people, and I've done that earlier, you you put stuff in your freezer and you don't label it. And when you're in the grocery store, you forget what you have in the freezer. So label it because I think I write this in the book. If you have you know, leftover bolognese, you put it in the, the bag and you put it in the freezer and you think, OK, I know this is bolognese and I will know that when I see it again. But three months from now, you, you've added five other bags of brown stuff and you don't know what is what and it all, all goes to the trash. So keep a list of what you have in the freezer. Uh, so in the freezer now, we, we have some rosé. So there was some <laughs> leftover rosé in a bottle. I don't know why, why that is. Uh, but we can, work that, we can work that into a sort of pasta sauce or, or a stew at one point. We have some, some green beans. We have uh, – oh, there was some leftover curry uh, sauce. I froze that down. And I have some leftover chicken as well. And then we have some peas also in the fridge. So there, if we get the, if we get the chicken leftover and the red curry and the peas – we just need to add some carrots and some onions, and we got a new red curry. So to me, it's very useful to, to always sort of be mindful of what is already in your freezer because you have food at home. Uh, I think that's important to remember things in the freezer, things in the pantry, because a lot of us just go out and we buy stuff that are now you know, 40% more expensive uh, because of inflation. To me, that's another way of a hygge home that... We're not lavish, that we respect sort of nature, that we are sustainable, that we don't just buy stuff and throw it away. So to me, that's a big element.
0: Another focus of your book is around how we can design for connection, because obviously, connection community is hugely influential in terms of levels of happiness. And this one fact that I have I must have shared it every single meeting that I've had since I've read your book. It's kind of my fact for the day that I share. is the power of round tables. Mm. It just feels so simple. And yeah, I love it.
1: Yeah. The thing is, when, when you have a round table, there's no head of the table. But the great mm. thing from a social point of view is you can see all the participants at the table. And, and if you have a long table... Sometimes you're sort of isolated up against the end, but having a round table makes the conversation simply flow better. So that, that, that's one of the powers of, of round tables. But I'm, I'm really interested in how do we get people to eat better? By that, I, I'm not just talking about sort of what ingredients, but how we work together as families, as friends around the table. Yannick's story with the kids and the, the candles are part of that. But I'm also really interested in how do we spend more time at the dinner table and not at the Mm. kitchen table? So how do we make dinners fast that are great and we can sort of dine together as a family? Because I'm a big fan of food, I'm a big fan of eating. But it's also when you ask people in the UK what turns a house into a home. The top five has nothing to do with things. I think the first thing on the list is number seven, which is a sofa. But the top things are the smell of food, it's family dinners, it's laughter, it's love, it's connection. So how do we make that happen? And I think, again, it's simple hacks. So I don't know whether you you like artichokes. Uh, It's such a fast dish to prepare. You put water in a pot, you add salt, and you add half a lemon, and then you boil the artichokes for 40 minutes. That's it. What I've noticed that when You eat artichokes because it's a slow food to eat because you have to peel off the leaf and you can dip them in butter or oil and eat them one by one. It adds, on average, in my home, 12 minutes to dinner time. And so so I'm really interested in recipes and initiatives like that where we have to do very little cooking or preparing and then get more quality time uh, around the dinner table. Also, when I was growing up, I mean, I was growing up in the 80s, Fondue was the big thing back then. And it was one of the most hugely family moments we had when you know the entire family is cooking this horrible food in, <laughs> in the hot oil. But it was a good time. And when you're 12 years old, that's the epitome of happiness. So finding ways where we move the time from the kitchen table to the dinner table, that is what we can help people with in this book.
0: Another thing that you're very passionate about is creating nooks. Why do you think nooks are important in supporting well-being?
1: That's another sort of inherent trait we have, that we like to be in a place where we can sort of observe the room and have our backs to the wall. Uh, I call it the Viking-proof seat in the house. Uh, So we (laughs) like to observe being able to observe the doors and being shielded. And recently we did a study at the Happiness Research Institute in houses in, in Denmark and the UK, And a lot of them are craving community. They're craving sort of a village feeling. They want to connect with neighbors. I think a lot of us want to be able to chat with our neighbors. We want to get to know them. We want to be able to borrow milk and eggs and and so on and have that sort of village feeling, even though we're living in a bigger city. But almost all of us also want to be able to retreat into privacy from the street we live in, but also perhaps within families. I think we we need a bit of, of me time. We need a bit of shelter we need a bit of retreat uh, we need some privacy and that is also what wabi what is it's about sheltering yourself from from a turbulent world and i think you know especially these days with with what is going on in ukraine and crises across the board i think it's helpful to be mindful of what i can and cannot control mm. So, of course, we try and and, and help where we can, for example, with the the crisis or with the war uh, invasion in in Ukraine. We've uh, donated the profits from the Happiness Museum in March to Red Cross in Ukraine. But I can't control what is happening there. Mm. So my focus is also what can I then control within these walls? Uh, And I can control that. Apparently, we're having red curry for for dinner tonight. Uh, (laughs) And I can control what is is the atmosphere around uh, the dinner table. So that that is also where I'm, I'm focusing on. And Hygge is about this sort of creating a shelter for yourself uh, in a turbulent world. You read my first book, uh, so sure you remember. I think it's one of the opening anecdotes of a trip I had in Sweden with a few friends of mine. And it was uh, December and we had been out hiking in the afternoon. And, and as darkness descended, we, we came back into the, the cabin and we got the fire going uh, in the fireplace and we had some sort of stew uh, on the on the stove. And we got that boiling, and then we were just sort of relaxing in our comfy clothes. Uh, I'm sure there was some wine, and then one of my friends said, uh, "Could this be any more hygge? And then another one said, "Yes, if there was a storm outside, because then we would also be also snuggly inside uh, the cabin, cozy, exactly." So I think finding ways where we can create a warm comforting atmosphere at home is something we need to be able to retreat to uh, in a turbulent, hectic, uh, stressful world. And that is essentially what what the book is about. Sort of how do we create spaces where we can re-energize and connect with other people, find a bit of everyday happiness, basically?
0: Honestly, I have... Enjoyed this interview so greatly and I love hearing you talk about this and it's so unique and so special for us to hear from someone who has researched this more than probably anyone in this world. Where is the best place for people to find you, connect with the Institute and and anything like that?
1: So the Institute is the website Happiness Research Institute and if people are, are coming to Copenhagen then the Happiness Museum is also uh, a small museum about the big things in life. Um, and then i'm i'm on uh, instagram not so often that that's a good place to to connect also if people want to to follow my work
0: we'll put a link to your new book in in the show notes so thank you so much and we'll just have to have you back for our next four hours of conversation which we didn't manage to cover
1: (laughs) then we need a lot of artichokes. jokes
0: (laughs) exactly (laughs) lots of artichokes. jokes
1: thank you puppy
0: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review, and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know Shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love